Yes, this is EM Case's Best Case Ever mini podcast series, and I'm your host, Dr. Anton Hellman. On today's Best Case Ever, we're going to have Dr. Andrew Slois. He's an emergency physician and assistant professor of EM at the University of Kentucky. He's trained in both pediatric and adult EM, and he's the host of the fantastic PEMED podcast. So I was working one night in Janus General, that's Scott Weingart's emergency department. And I was there one night with my resident, and I had a really sick 60-year-old female role in borderline bradycardia with hypotension. So her blood pressure was in the 80s and her heart rate was in the 80s. And you would expect that heart rate to be significantly higher. There's only five things that cause that, and that's electrolytes, drugs, ischemia, pacemaker malfunction, and neurogenic shock. And we quickly ruled out most of them by putting an ultrasound on her heart. And we got to the got to the differential, honed it right down to one thing almost immediately when we saw pericardial tamponade. She had a huge pericardial effusion with the actual man jumping on the trampoline. You could see the man jumping on the trampoline. So very sensitive for the actual diagnosis. Called our cardiology colleagues, called our CV surgery colleagues to come help us because we knew more than likely she was going to definitively need a pericardial window. However, they were a long way away. We tried push-dose pressors, but she really wasn't getting any better. Not a lot of, of volume depletion, so we were scared to give too much volume. So we gave just a little bit of volume, and then we decided we had to cowboy up and go ahead and put in the do the pericardiocentesis. I think in Anton in Canada, it's probably Mountie up. Maybe, <laughs> maybe, maybe. But in, cowboy up, I love that. In Janice General and in the U.S., it, it's cowboy up. So we we did the standard clean and prep and drape in the usual sterile fashion and proceeded with a pericardiocentesis kit to draw off a little bit of blood. Standard 10 cc's or less that you would do. And immediately her blood pressure got up. By this point, we had an art line. Her blood pressure popped right back up and we had given her a couple of push dose presses of epi, but we figured that had probably worn off and that it was most likely taking off the small amount of fluid that we did that caused the increase in blood pressure. And I was so anal, we actually took the fluid and we dumped it on the drape to see if it would clot. And while we were waiting there for about a minute or so, her blood pressure started to tank again. And this time she wasn't as responsive to the ionotropes that we were giving. We had even started a drip at this point. We were titrating up and I was giving push doses on top of it. And we decided we were going to take a little bit more fluid off. And when we did, immediately the blood pressure popped right back up. And now this was definitely the art line. It was definitely a real increase. It was not having anything to do with the inotropes we were giving her other than the standard drip that we had started. We weren't giving her any more. So we figured that it probably was the removal of the pericardial fluid. And now we were up to about 20 mLs, which was concerning. But we felt with the ultrasound guidance that we saw the needle in the space where it needed to be. And we were pretty sure we were where we needed to be. And the patient wasn't going to do well. We thought if we didn't do the drain, so we put the drain in. And almost immediately, my heart sunk because I saw a pulsatile wave start to come back. And if you're not familiar with a pericardiocentesis kit, there's a bag that you hook up, just like a Foley bag. And I took the Foley bag and I put it below the patient and the pump, pump, pump continued. I brought it above the patient hoping gravity would relieve it. And the pump, pump, pump continued. And my heart sank as I hope everyone's heart on the other side of this mic is sinking at this time, knowing that I had most likely intubated the right ventricle. And that's exactly what I did. So the catheter was in the right ventricle. Ouch. Ouch. Ouch for me and ouch for the patient, ouch for everyone in the room. And by this time, the CV surgeon had just about shown up. I think he entered about a minute or two later as I'm doing the maneuver with the bag. He said, huh, 
intubated the right ventricle, huh? <laughs> I said, yeah, I really think we did. And unfortunately, we didn't know anything about the patient she rolled in without family or history, but this was a patient who had been admitted about a week before with a malignant pericardial effusion and was really a DNR. So at Janus General, we would have probably proceeded to more palliative and comfort measures. We didn't know any of that, so we were doing a full court press to save save her. But she went to the operating room. They did repair it. It was relatively easy repair. But unfortunately, about two or three days later, she succumbed. And it probably wasn't as much from the intubating of the right ventricle, though I'm sure the stress of surgery didn't help. But she had overwhelming metastasis everywhere, and and she succumbed. So, Andy, I can't even imagine that feeling you had when you saw that pulsatile blood pumping through your pericardiocentesis drain there. What are the take-home points for our listeners? What did you learn from this experience? So if you were looking to Webster's under sphincter tightening, you would have a picture of my sphincter at that time. <laughs> I've never felt such tightening and remorse. And honestly, I'd never want to do something bad for the patient. And I really felt like I did. Although in hindsight, I definitely learned a couple of things. The first and foremost is I think I probably cowboyed up a little early. And if I had it all to do over again, and I have, then what I do is I drain off the fluid and I really push the ionotropes. And I try to get somebody who can come in and who has done a ton of these to do what they really need, which is a pericardial window. And what we've learned is that if you look at the cardiology literature, they have this happen to them once or twice a year in a major cath lab. So it's not unreported. And they're doing it with fluoro. And since I don't have fluoro, and I've had to do it one other time, my approach is a little different. Number one, I try not to do it. So I would drain the fluid off, I would try inotropes, and then I would even drain it a second time before I push to drain. But if I'm out in the middle of nowhere where I can't possibly get someone to come in and do a window and the patient needs this to survive, then what I would do is two things. One, I would use the ultrasound. I would do a parasternal long approach and do, do this procedure through the chest. Shortest distance, least likely for complication. I would then take agitated saline once I thought I knew exactly where I was, and I would push that through the needle and see that it does not go into the right ventricle. So it must be in the pericardial space, and sometimes you can see it there. And then once I did that, I would thread the wire, and I would take a two-view chest X-ray in the recess room, one on a standard trauma stretcher with a with an AP, and then the second, I would just hold it up and do the lateral and try to ascertain that the wire was in the right place. And then finally, I would put the drain in, but I would at least add those two steps to try to decrease morbidity because I don't own a fluoro unit. The general principle is you need to know what you're good at and where your limits are. You know, sometimes it's really hard to know when to act. There's two extremes. There's being a coward and not doing anything when you have to do something. And the other extreme is being a cowboy when it's not time sensitive and you don't actually have to do what you're doing and you could cause more harm. Yeah, I agree with that. In the U.S., you tend to see people that will be willing to make errors of omission where they just won't get involved because they've never been trained to do it as opposed to errors of commission. And I cannot stand when someone will sit by and watch someone die when they knew that there was a time-sensitive disease process. They had to get involved. And if they didn't get involved, the patient was going to succumb as opposed to, I'm going to get involved. I'm going to try it. It may not work, but the only shot they have is me. Surely if there's someone who 
can do it better and knows it better and can come in and do it fantastic, but that's not always the case. The case is often in emergency medicine as emergentologists, you are going to be put in positions where you know the theory of how to do it and you have to take the shot. And if you don't take the shot, then they're going to die. And it's knowing the difference. And that's where I probably push the envelope there and I maybe didn't have to in hindsight. And since I've done it twice more where I've been more guarded when I knew I could be. But if I were put in the same position where I thought the only thing that was going to save the patient was continued pericardiocentesis, then I would absolutely put the drain again and twice on Sunday. So Andy, thanks so much for being on Emergency Medicine Cases. I hope we can do some more work together in the future. It was fantastic, man. I love your country. (laughs) (laughs) All right. We have a lot to learn from each other. All right. Thanks a lot. All right. I learned my 